Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. You are listening to Notion Capital Podcast FM, the voice of European enterprise tech. Next up is our show, Go to Market Heroes, with Andy and his amazing guests. And talking of being a hero. Good day, everyone. I'm Paul with my comrade Andy, Andy Lever. We're back for another episode of Go to Market Heroes, episode 11. Would you believe it? But we're not done yet in this season. A few more to go to gently take you to the heat of the summer. And through the magic of technology, at the time of this recording, it's the day that the Euro 2020, I call it Euro 2021, actually, because we're really in 2021. Euro 2021 is starting. But by the time you folks are listening to this, you will know who will have won. So you are living in the future. And talking about someone who lives in the future, it's obviously Andy, always on the lookout for the next trend, the next startup. And we know and I know culture is a big component of why companies thrive. So the question of the day that I'm going to throw to him is, is there a culture you admire, Andy? Paul, good question. But before I answer that, you need to make a prediction. You need to tell us right now who just won Euro 2020. <laughs> I think the team that has the most chances is France. Okay. But you never know. That's uh, Look, the t-shirt I have today is a lion, so you can guess who I'm supporting. Uh, Go England. Though there's also Switzerland where I'm from, so it's really hard for me. I don't know how to choose. But France has the best chances. You never know. You never know. You, you never know. Well, I think France and Portugal are well-tipped, but the thing with the Euros is the favorite, the people who start the fastest usually end the slowest. So it's, you know, yes. it's hard to tell. Very hard to tell. Anyway, to answer your question, I have been very fortunate to work with, earlier in my career, a company that really defined culture for me earlier on, which was General Electric, GE. This is the era of Jack Welsh, and, and I was very fortunate to go to Crotonville and spend time there and see Jack in action. And was just fascinated by the way that he could get 320,000 employees all pointing in the same direction with the same values. And actually, this is what it was like then. We had laminated cards that we carried around with our values just to make sure we reminded ourselves. So it wasn't wow. quite indoctrinated, but it was, hey, know your purpose and kind of your ethics as you're doing business. And that was because the company had gone through a terrible acquisition in the past and been burned by that and realized that they needed to be absolutely firm about this. And that rolled forward into the valley. You know, I've read so much about people like Nolan Bushnell with his culture at Atari, HP, how they created a lot of valley culture. So I first saw this really, really in action with success factors, Lars Dalgard, who was so strong on culture, so strong on culture. And then when I got to work there and met Dave Duffield, I just realized that Dave, in a very relaxed way, just oozed culture into that organization. And you talk to anybody at work there, and, you know, they will talk fairly eloquently about the culture and kind of how they believe in it, but also want to be part of it. You know, I remember once reading that somebody said that that culture is a cheap way of getting somebody into a cult and not giving them the pay rise that goes with it. I think there's a line somewhere, and I've been very fortunate to work with companies that have always been the right side of that line. <laughs> oh, well, I don't know if we're going to talk about culture, but I'm sure he created one that was great as well. So please introduce us to our hero of the day. I am super pleased we are joined by Chris Bruce. Chris is going to help us with two things which are fascinating about his background. One is... He's built an incredible company, and I'm sure he can help us talk about that and talk through how we built that business and exited that business. And then also, right behind that, 
I've been fortunate to work with Chris as HR and HR tech have developed, and he's quite a prolific investor. So I'd love to dig into some of his thoughts on how the market, the red hot HR tech market is evolving and how it's so, so different from what we saw all those years ago. So Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Delighted to be here today. Fantastic. Great you're here. So we always like to start with, what did you do or how did you get into this prior to founding Thompson Online Benefit? What was your path? Because I'm always interested in that accident design mix in terms of people getting to where it all really started. So what was your story? Yeah, I look back and you join the dots and try and figure out how it all happened. And really, there was a lot of luck in there. I left university and most of my mates were going off, friends were going off to go and work for banks and insurance companies or law firms, or whatever else. That wasn't for me. I would have been really bad at it. And so I wanted to go and do something a bit different. And I ended up going to Colorado so I could ski and I got a job selling cars. So my proper sort of first entry into sales was commission only selling Volvos and, and Mazdas in, in Denver. And that gave me a real sort of bug for doing something a bit different and, and the travel. And then I went to Beirut, where I worked for a wealth management company. And then I came back from Beirut, went back to the UK, and my father ran a corporate financial advisory business, which he was looking to sell. And I had nothing better to do, so I, I joined him, and I sort of went with the furniture to the company that then, then acquired us. I got on well with the chief executive of that business, didn't know him particularly well, and he invited me along to, to carry his bag, really, to go and do a pitch one day. And we're in a taxi on the way to, to the pitch, this is back in 2000, height of the, the dot-com era. And we started talking about how the internet could change the world that we were in, which was employee benefits. And he talked about how the internet could solve the admin problem, the employee engagement problem, and the data problem. And I was hooked. And I mean, to this day, it sort of really galls me that it was his idea. But I was absolutely hooked. And I went back, and I wrote a business plan, and then the two of us left the company and founded Thompson's Online Benefits, so back in, back in 2000. And the guys, Michael Whitfield, one of my close his friends. You talked about culture earlier on. He and I believed that the thing that, that led to our success was the culture that was created in the business. And he was a guy who drove it and made that, that happen. We always talked about, I was the, the go-to-market guy, so I was trying to drive the business forward. He was creating the internal culture, which oozed into the, into the marketplace. So yeah, so a bit of a, a, a long-winded intro, but hopefully gives you a sort of sense as to how Thompson's began. Fascinating. And I, I always like to talk about these kind of non-conventional routes that people end up where they are. So when you had this discussion, what was going to be different about Thompson? What was the spark to say, we can do something different or better? What was that? Yeah, I think there were a couple of things. First of all, Benefit admin, if you go back 20 years, was horrible. It was all, it, an employee joined a company that got given a pile of paperwork to complete. And you would complete all this paperwork or, or not. A lot of people never got around to it. And then you'd wait for three months for your policy document to come through and your pension or your private medical insurance. And if you had any deductions coming out, then somehow someone had to figure out what you had put into the application form to make sure they took the right deductions out of payroll. And then the information needed to go out to the different insurance companies. So invariably it went wrong. 
massively wrong. And our solution was incredibly simple. It was, we're just going to put the internet in the middle of the whole thing. So we would take data from a company and that would become a source of truth. We'd let employees make selections on our, on our tech. And then we would provide payroll with the information on the deductions. And we would provide the information to the insurance companies and any other providers on what employees had actually selected and set up. And you look at it now and I, and I talk about it and it's incredibly obvious and clearly the thing that everybody should have done. But we spent the first five years, really from 2000 to 2005, persuading people it was okay to put their information online. And the, the end of the world wasn't going to happen. And so really, it was, it was post-2005 that the business actually started to, to take off. And Andy, you're one of the people I thank for that, because it was really, I think, Workday, with the company, that, which it was a significant part of your life, that, that I think helped to make the cloud something that was acceptable for HR and business users. So thank you, Andy. You're very welcome. You've just brought <laughs> back painful memories, actually, of completing a, a contract with a customer and then at one minute to midnight, this new role called the Chief Information Security Officer arriving and going, <laughs> yeah. this data is going where? It's going outside yeah. the walls of this organization. So, yeah, you just broke back memories of that. But thank goodness we had another company called Salesforce.com who kind of plowed the way as well. So they took totally. a lot about totally. data privacy, et cetera. So that, that, was, that was great. In that equation as well, so there's yourself and Michael. Was it a natural kind of fit in terms of what you were both going to do? And I also know there wasn't a technical founder, if I'm not wrong you know, the technical leg. How did that come about? Yeah, that's right. So one of the things, you know, Michael and I are very, very different people. And, and Michael, when we set the business up, was 15 years older than me and had a huge amount of business experience. And I was you know, young. I was 26. And at any other time, you probably couldn't have got away with it. But if you go back to 2000, sort of being young, was seen as being an advantage. And so I think Mike was quite happy to go into partnership with me because I sort of, I gave it a bit of edge in when we were trying to fundraise and go out and talk to people. But initially, we both did everything. Naturally, the tech sort of came to me just purely because I was younger, but I had no idea what I was doing. But we were both involved in sales. We were both involved in pretty much every aspect of the business. And we just had a can-do, just-get-it-done type attitude. And it's interesting because now you, you touched earlier on, I'm, I'm doing a lot of venture investing, a lot of angel investing. And, and the most important think me as founders and the dynamic we like multiple founders and that dynamic between the founders is critical and the dynamic between us was that we were focused on the goal not who was right or wrong and a lot of people around us found our relationship quite difficult to understand because we'd argue and scream at each other about stuff but it's both because we were just really passionate about what we thought was the right thing and then eventually we'd, we'd argue, we'd go, actually, no, do you know what, you know, Michael, you're right. And then I'd be taken board, Michael, we'd go and have a pint down the pub. And it was all forgotten. And, and people around almost couldn't get it. But that was, so, so there was Michael and I for the first first four years. And then there was a guy called Pete Craghill. And I met Pete through a partner, a partner relationship we built with Microsoft pretty early on. And I very quickly caught on that the Pete was somebody who could help me. And so I would regularly go and take Pete out for Guinness's come and pick your brain and buy some Guinness. And back in 2004, we just completed a fundraise and I'm out picking Pete's brains about what we need to do in the product. And as the evening progressed, I said, Pete, why don't you come and join us? And Pete, having drunk too much, goes, I'd love to do that. And so took this high flyer from Microsoft, came and then joined us at Thompson's. And really what then happened is Michael ran the business and the operations. I 
led the go-to-market and being out in the market, and Pete ran the tech. And it was a fantastic relationship. And, and without Pete, we would have very quickly spent the money that we had just raised, probably had a lot of fun doing it, but um, I don't think the business would have survived that long. And what was Pete's take on your efforts today, being a, I'm going to do rabbit ears now, professional, and coming in <laughs> and looking at what you built? What, what was his assessment? So he was, Chris, you're not a technologist. And so Pete, literally day two, he said, Chris, can I have a word? And took me into a little room and said, Chris, I love the vision for the company. I love what you're trying to do. And I totally buy it. But you're never going to do it with this tech. And so you need to scrap the tech and start all over again. And, and at this point, Pete could see me, obviously, tears in my eyes. And I spent the last four years of my life working 18-hour days trying to build this thing. And But actually, look at this as being a really good thing. You spent four years building an amazing prototype. You now know everything that is wrong with the tech and what you would do differently. And so very quickly, and he's a super smart guy, the conversation was about if we were to start again, what would we develop? And so we're up on a whiteboard and we sort of mapped out the key things that we needed to do. And we rebuilt the technology on that basis. And the product that we have today is off the back of that conversation that we had. Fantastic. That discussion you just had about founders and that interrelationship and their skills and kind of what they what roles they start with and what they end up with is so important in the evolution of companies. It's a fascinating journey for a lot of people. And let me ask you, because you and I both run businesses and then we've gone into the investing side. So when you're looking at a business, what's your view of single founder versus multiple founder and what you want to see in that dynamic? I think um, a single founder who is a multiple founder, and they've done it a few times, can attract and will attract a lot of people to the business. Because if they've had successes previously, I think they can build people around them. And the only thing I look for is, is there emotional scar tissue of why they want to be a single founder? Right. And, and it may be innocent. It may be that, hey, listen, I just want to do this myself. Or it may be that, you know, there's been issues in the past in terms of who they've worked with or who's funded them, et cetera. And they just don't want to go to have that baggage anymore. But I agree. I, you know, if I was looking at something and I saw three founders, one is very good at just the leadership and the vision and the drive. One is just very good at the operations and the blocking and tackling and bringing it all together. And one is very, very good at the tech. I look at it and think that's the dream team. You know, if they yeah. really, really have this great relationship, then good things happen. The hard thing is when a founder leaves as well, you know, when you've got one founder who eventually just decides to go. And I think one of the worst situations is where founders get enticed away, which I'm seeing more and more. You know, people try to entice them away to go build maybe even a rival product, which, you know, that creates more scar tissue for them as well in the future, I think. Yeah, because I think the DNA of the business is really created by those founders. And so if one of the moves away is taking something away from the company, which can be quite inherent in it. But equally, I've also seen it where the best thing a company can do is actually get rid of one of the founders. I mean, that sounds pretty harsh, but actually the dynamic doesn't work. But the balance of how their founding team works together is is critical. And Michael and I, we're very, very close. We're still working together. It's 25 years almost on from when we first met. And a lot of the people that we've worked with over the years are very, very good friends because we went through something pretty special together. So that period, so you started the business about 2000. You kind of gone through the, the NASDAQ collapsing in 2001, which we all recall. Yeah. You got to 2005 and realized that you had bumps in the road as far as tech is concerned. Then you're probably closing on 2009, which was another difficult period business-wise, you know, so that first 10 years, would you characterize that as hard or just really setting, was there moments where you thought we've really nailed this and we're on a good trajectory or were you still thinking, we're still not quite sure whether we've got the perfect fit technical-wise and offering-wise? 
that overnight success that took 20 years, when did you realize this is actually yeah. going to work? The first five years were horrific. You know, we were trying to meet payroll and the tech was pretty shoddy. And so we were always fighting fires. We then really became a product company in many ways. You know, Pete delivered and so built a fantastic product. And we, at that point, became incredibly clear on our value prop. And actually, in the, in the investing world I'm in now, I spent a lot of time helping people to think about what the value prop is and how do they really differentiate their product from a, what is going to be a very noisy market? And how do you get people to see that actually I need to prioritize this over anything else? But we came up with a very, very clear slide deck that talked about the different generations of technology and where we fitted in. And, and it worked. And we had a swag. You had a sales team who believed they were going to win every deal that they went into. And that just sort of fueled the organization and the growth. So we went from revenues of about 1.8 in the end of 2004 to revenues of about 35 million by 2011. So wow. our growth was pretty stratospheric and we became absolutely the dominant player in the in the UK market. And actually, even things like the financial crisis, we just repositioned our value prop to be around what was needed for that market as opposed to the booming employment market we'd seen beforehand. So that worked well. I think where we had to then reinvent ourselves again and it became really challenging is that we had set a new course, which was to become a global platform. And the leap from being dominant in the UK market to becoming effectively creating another category, which is global benefit administration, which people said you couldn't do because it's just way too complicated, which in some ways was like starting up again. And that was tough because, and I hope this will resonate with people listening into this who are at that sort of that series B, series C stage where we had lots of people we talked to loved what we were trying to do in the business, but actually getting people to write out a check for a global implementation is complicated. And you're then dealing with very large organizations, typically big buying cycles, big stakeholder management was was tough. So it wasn't really proper until 2014 that we cracked then the global global market. And did that accelerate growth again? So you got on quite a nice revenue journey then. Was there then another acceleration once you kind of cracked that global problem as well? Yeah, huge. Yeah. Huge. I mean, the UK market is of only a certain size, and I think everybody aspires to have the product be a global product. And the fact that we were the people who had cracked it, I mean, ultimately led to our acquisition by, by Mercer. And we were very attractive to a lot of organizations because we were such a unique asset at the point that we exited at the end of 2016. So it wasn't just about the revenues, but it was actually the fact that we had created something which would be difficult for other people to try and do. I want to talk about that, but I want to ask you a self-serving question, first of all. <laughs> okay, so answer this as you wish. In that journey, how did venture change? Because you went out, you raised money in various ways. How do you think venture changed and the way that it looked at businesses like yours? Because I see HR Tech is one of those businesses that kind of comes into favor and goes out of favor, depending on macro events typically. So how did that affect you in terms of fundraising? So we got our original money from a single corporate who put a bit of cash in. I mean, the venture market just didn't exist for something in the HR tech space, certainly in the UK market. And then we did we did some angel funding to an extent for the raise we did in the end of 2004. 2012, when we did another raise, it was fascinating. We went to the US, we went to Europe, and Europe were basically offering us checks about 40% less than the US were. And so clearly, we went to the US. And the US had a lot more belief in what we could become over European companies. I look at now, and, and I've had this conversation with Michael many times, how you can't recognize the landscape now compared to the landscapes it was around both funding, but also all the support that goes around helping early stage companies to get lift off. 
it's so exciting the investment community right now and and actually how much easier it is and obviously also the tech is easier to spin up quickly because it's the cloud so and so forth yeah yeah i was talking about this with someone the other day saying hey it's not like you create a business to go into somebody else's market because the cost of building tech and the price points have come down you can create whole new markets i mean selling some of the tech to very quickly smb and developers, the cost of building yep. that tech once upon a time would just make it a nonsense in terms of a business plan. But now these things make sense in terms of building them. And I look at, this is going to dirt the podcast right now, monday.com IPO'd yesterday yep. for a, roughly a $7 billion valuation. And you think, wow, how can they build tech to service the market that they do? It's incredible, really. It's incredible. But also the other thing, because if we're notion in particular investing, there's always concern about who's next. So you've got a business which is growing fast and it's disrupting a market, but actually it's much easier for other people to come in now behind them with maybe a slightly different offering or a, an improved offering and, and understanding whether the company is going to be able to continue that rise to become a Monday.com or whether actually somebody else is going to come out with a, a shinier tool. It's going to keep everyone on their feet. Mm. Hey, so I'd love to talk a little bit about then the acquisition of the business and how that came about, because I'm sure it's not a... One day you woke up and thought, hey, we're going to sell the company. Someone came along and bought it. I'm sure it was a little bit more convoluted (laughs) and a lot of emotion in it as well in terms of deciding to take your baby and entrust it to somebody else at the end of the day. Yeah. And and Andy, people talk about it being your baby. I mean, it really is. If you've started something, we started in in this awful, awful office above the Burger King in Victoria. And so you've taken this thing from absolutely nothing with companies with 10 employees looking and going, well, no, I don't see value in it. Uh, GE, Apple, Google, Goldman Sachs, you name it, they're all using our tech around the world. But both Michael and I were both, for different reasons, ready for the business to be be acquired. Michael's a bit older than me. His wife was quite rightly saying to him, um, I'd like to see you a bit. And for me, I was living on airplanes. You know, it wasn't unusual to go to Japan, to Singapore, to New York, via London during a week. And I was just on airplanes the whole time. So, you know, I was pretty drained from that and also ready to spend time with my family and not always be jet lagged. And the other thing is we knew from a market perspective that we were coming to a point where the product couldn't really survive without being owned by a big consulting broking firm. And within the benefit world in which we operate, there's a lot of relationships. The providers are a global relationships, but equally we need the technology to be truly localized, which we would only achieve if we were owned by a big company. We had partnerships with all of the very big organizations, but we felt the chemistry was particularly strong with one of them, which was Mercer. They came and they approached us one day and said, and we knew this was coming, sort of, sort of, it was expected. They came to us one day and said, we're really excited, we'd like to buy your business and here's the amount. And both Michael and I just looked at each other and went, you're having a laugh, aren't you? (laughs) And it was one of those most awkward meetings where they'd flown over to present the number type thing. And so then they went away and they came back four months later with a number which by then was exciting to us and we felt to represent the value of the business. Our PE firm didn't want us to exit. They thought there was still a lot of value, but we were both ready to go. But it's a big moment. I mean, you've, you've, you've seen it loads with people, that whole thing of when you've sold the business that you've spent your, your life trying to build, it's a, it's a huge moment. Mm. It's emotional. Yeah, for sure. Hugely emotional. Were the employees part of this journey or was there this big moment where you gathered everybody together and said, we have news? You know, because for them as well, they've made a big investment to the business. How, how did that work, them transitioning to think about new owners of the business? 
Yeah, so we touched earlier on culture and the business had an incredibly strong culture and we'd worked so hard to develop that culture. We used to talk about the characteristics of a Thompson's person and everybody that we brought into business. We wanted to be brave, can-do, caring, dedicated, passionate, fun, pink. And it was. And what was ironic is that when Merce came around, so the second time around, and we agreed this sort of six-week closing period on the business, I had booked a holiday to Mauritius sort of six months earlier when my wife was saying to me, am I going to see you this year? And I said, you're not going to see me this year, but at the end of the year, we'll go on holiday. And so, of course, the timing of then saying, we're going to be closing the deal when we're in the middle of our holiday. And so what made it even weirder, stranger, was that you know, I signed all the paperwork before I left. And so it was ready to go on the completion date. But I was in my hotel bedroom watching Michael telling everybody that we'd sold the business and that we had a new owner. So that was really strange, sort of watching it sort of happening slightly remotely. But it was also the lovely, loveliest thing to be actually with my family at that moment, because otherwise I probably wouldn't have left the pub for a few days of you know, being with everybody for that moment. It's, it's a weird, weird thing reliving it. But yeah, it's, it's, mm. all, it's all sold. It's done. And that was five years ago? So 2016, yeah? Yeah, December 2016. Sorry, Andy, I feel, I feel quite, quite emotional. It really is. Um, it's, I've not told that story for a while, but it was, it was a huge thing. How many employees were there, by the way, at that point? About 700, 700 people Wow, across US, UK, Romania, and uh, Singapore. Yeah. And some people will have carried on with the story. Some people will have left over the years. What's the camaraderie like now amongst the employees? Is it still a pretty close-knit team? Do you still keep in contact with a lot of the alumni? Yeah, oh, very much. You know, one thing we did really well in particular is we recruited a lot of young people across the business. And we worked so hard to have those people feel like they were part of the team and that we were, you know, we would take you on a market, we would change your market. And they were, and everybody was a really important part of it. And so a lot of people who grew up and it's sort of really formed a part of their career in Thompson's. And I mean, I'm so proud of seeing so many people now in, in really you know, impressive roles or, you know, they're doing their own startup and their business is going really well. And yeah, we, we had the Green Coat Boy pub just around the corner. And a lot of people, that is still a sort of a, a natural meeting point for a lot of us to go to, to go and reminisce and, and share stories from old times. Fantastic. Well, listen, thank you for telling us that story, sharing that story. So I, I know, hey, I've been through moments like that. So I know there are... Um... They, yeah. they, they can be tough. And I think your emotion at the time versus your emotion later on changes. Oh, hugely. Yeah. Hugely. Changes as you go. But you just touched on what I was going to talk about, segue into, is a lot of those people have now gone on to found the next generation of companies. And I know you've created the Pink Investment Club. That's right. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. What is it? So my journey was you almost decompress, I think, after you've sold a business. And anybody listening to this who has either just sold a business or is going to sell a business, I'd urge you not to rush into what you're going to do next. If I wasn't retained for two years, I would have walked out of the door straight away because I, I actually, in two months and I hated it. I hated it not being my business and or our business. And But actually, 18 months in, I took it couple of months out and decided what I wanted to do. And I went back and I talked to Mercer's CEO and I said, I've spent my adult life building this technology. I want to still be a part of it, not in an operational role, but in an, an advisory role. And, and you know, I care a lot about the people. And, and so I spent a bit of time with Mercer and Darwin, which I believe will continue to grow to become a very significant platform in the HR tech space. And then Michael and I set up what we call the Pink Investment Club. So we are angel investors into HR 
tech businesses. We're very, very hands-on with these companies. It's, you know, it's our own money that we've worked really hard to create. So we find businesses that we think are really special and then help them to grow and, and develop. And so any company we're looking at, we look at, at three things. We look at the idea. Do we get excited by the idea? And is, is it of the moment? We look at can it scale? Could it become a global business? And then the by far the most criteria is the founding team. Do we think these are people who can lead a business all the way through that journey that you go through as you as you build build a business? This is the opportunity, by the way. So two kindred spirits in HR tech that we can truly geek out about this. Okay. So yeah. other people may want to switch off right now. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. This yeah. is for the hardcore section. Yeah. What excites you? I mean, you've come out of benefits and you've reimagined that and really thought carefully about the how that can become a global business. What's coming through now that you see and you think, wow, that's something that I can really, really get excited about? So naturally, the well-being space is something which for Michael and I is a big area of focus. And it's naturally the evolution of benefits, which, as you would remember, go back 20 years, were very much something you got and never thought about unless you needed to claim or you got to retirement to something that was much more around actually how do we engage people and how do we make a difference to people's lives. There are now so many different point solutions. And I think I probably get into my inbox every couple of days, I get a new idea around some well-being benefit or not. But I think that there are those companies that are going to break through and make a huge difference. One of our first investment was a company called Unmind, which is in the mental health space. And they've just raised 47 million as a Series B. And you look at those guys and what they're doing makes a difference and will make a real difference to the workplace. And so across the wellbeing space, there's a lot of things that, we're, that we've either invested in or we're, we're looking at. And then it's other businesses where you look at the idea a bit like our, what we see with our business, where you look at it and you go, that just makes a ton of sense. That's going to disrupt. That's going to change something. You know, I like it. And what we don't particularly do is look at things which are really broad. And so what we're focused on is the niche stuff. And then you're trying to figure out, is this going to be built by someone who's actually offering a broader suite? And if so, is it going to be able to break through or not? But right now, for you and I, who are HR tech guys through and through, we couldn't live in a more exciting time. Mm. I, I don't think. I mean, it's the world of work is changing rapidly and the thing that you and I care about a lot is HR tech is at the heart of that transformation. But I'm going to, Andy, I'm going to ask you, what is particularly exciting you at the moment? Well, you touched upon health. And I think now because of the tech, we can connect more effectively health with lifestyle with work because the lines are blurred, particularly post pandemic now where there's work from anywhere going on. So, you know, I'm sat in my home office right now talking to you in your home as well. You know, it's very easy for us to just, work through the day kind of home life work life etc but the health that goes behind that is you know i think bill gates said the the new smoking is sitting at your desk all day okay so how do we break that cycle as well and we we notion of invested in a company called you life which can try to connect health the health data and lifestyle data into your work life that's one side the other side that i love is how we can use hr tech to be smart now and actually be in your flow of work So when you open up your laptop every day and you log on to email, what's the next thing you go into and how can we weave that into HR tech? So just smart things that look at things like, are you making best use of your money? Are you making best use of your time with that gym subscription? Just things that guide you that way. Like, And I think the whole training space is being reimagined completely. Yeah, because 
hey, I'm going to sit down and do two hours of training online, said nobody ever. Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yeah. How quickly can I get through it? Yes. I, I, there's the mandatory training, tick, and then there's everything yeah. else. You know. So how do we think about that? Yeah. The last bit that I'm fascinated by, this is my recent fascination, is I think Gen Z, Gen Z are very driven by purpose. And when they come to an organization, they may say, what's my job? What's my title? What's my salary? What's my benefits? But right behind that will be, what does this company stand for? What do you do in the community? How do you give back? How do you ensure that you make a positive impression on society? You know, they actually want something with purpose rather than being a, again, rabbit ears, wage slave. You know, I want to make feel fulfilled in what I'm doing. And I think they have a low tolerance for companies that don't do that. You know, they will leave pretty quickly. So to me, that side of business, you know, the B Corps, as they're talking about now, and how the pledges are coming out in terms of giving the 111 place that Benioff did in terms of giving 1% back, I think people are going to look at that more and more closely to say, how do us employees be part of that? So how do I go and volunteer? How do I be part of the community? As a part of my work experience, that's another fascinating area because Gen Z are the early adopters of pretty much everything. And if they don't like it, it's probably not going to stick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think what you're saying is, is actually spot on because people look at the actions a company takes and say, do their values resonate with my values? Whereas in the past, you could have leaders standing up and saying, this is what we stand for. And people can now see very, very clearly whether the company actually follow through and actually the talk is cheap, but actually do they put their, their money where the mouth is? And actually the pandemic, I think, has really shown that you've got some companies have significantly enhanced the value that as they're perceived by their employees because of the decisions that they've taken to show that they care about them and support them. Whereas other companies have really messed up because when it came down to it, they said actually shareholders are a number one and you come second. The other thing that I think is a is a huge shift that you and I have seen over the years is this move from tech being about improving systems and helping the HR function to now being about the humanization of work and actually recognizing that we are all humans. And so whether that's, you know, I, I care about my well-being or whether it is I care about being able to learn and, and improve myself, whether it's that I, I care about diversity and inclusion or or other things on the ESG spectrum. But I think that this sort of speaking for companies' values is is critical. And then, of course, we've got the flexible working piece and we've got the gig economy and there's a lot of figuring out to do. But a lot of figuring out means that there's a huge amount of opportunities out there. But there's also a huge amount of businesses that are going to be really well funded that are going to fail. You just reminded me of your five-minute Friday when I came on and gave a monologue about flexible working in the gig economy. <laughs> so hopefully, hopefully that made sense. So I know you're going to say that you love all of your children equally. <laughs> but out of all of your children, your investments, which are the ones you look at and think, wow, they really have potential to be enormous. You know, they could be any scale right now. But is there any ones that you look at and think this really is going to be big? Yeah, it's a difficult one because I think all of the companies, we've looked pretty hard at those three criteria of the idea, the scale and the founders. And every month, Michael and I sit down, we, we have someone who runs the finances and we look at all of the numbers across the portfolio and how everything's doing. And then we have a tick box that we look at where we do red, amber, green against each one of those criteria for each of the businesses and go, how do we think they're doing against these things? I, I mean, without without doubt, our standout company in the portfolio for its ability to be the first unicorn, because I hope they all become unicorns, would be unmined. 
because of the impact it's having on the preventative mental health space. You know, but if I can give a shout out to some of the other companies, I think in the wellbeing space, we have Nudge, we have Hika, we have another company that we're looking at at the moment. And then again, sort of on the humanizing of work, one of the companies, Andy, you and I have spoken about a lot is How Now. And I love what they're doing in how they've developed such clever tech around making sure that people are getting the learning that they want at the point that they, they want it. But then from a mission perspective, there's a couple of companies I've loved. One of them is a company called Hundo, which is that the founder has spent her life trying to get basically school leavers and, and kids from disadvantaged backgrounds into work. And where she's done that, the companies that recruit this as sponsored kids end up saying that they are their best employees or some of their best employees. And she's been developing out you know, very much with our support, but a platform in order to match up those candidates. And, and I think that business, the performance that they're achieving is just off the charts because companies recognizing that, that it's good. And then another company, HR Data Hub, I love the fact that they're really focused on the, the diversity and inclusion agenda and making sure the companies aren't just talking about diversity and inclusion, but actually they've got the data to be able to demonstrate that they are making a difference and they can measure what they're doing. So I'm going to be in trouble now because I'm sure that I will have left some of my favorite children off. Placed in Tempo, radically changing the recruitment marketplace. And boy, are those guys flying at the moment as the UK economy sort of comes back into action again. I think you did a pretty... Did I do a really bad job then of answering your question? I didn't tick them off, but you did a good job of making sure that everyone knew that you did love all your children equally. So good job there. Good job. <laughs> well, I have I have four children, Andy, as you know, so I'm practiced at <laughs> trying to do it. Hey, so so just, just to finish off there, now that you're investing and you've got your club going and there's yourself and Michael, what do you like to bring to the company? What involvement do you like to have to help them in some of the things that you found as you were building your business how hands-on are you are you just board level you're advising or does it change so the pink investment club is for us about how do companies in the hr tech space that we've invested into all help each other and so it's a real community but then yes we are very hands-on it's our nature and you know, michael talks for himself talks about michael 2.0 and and i'm probably sort of similar to this and in, in that this is the phase of my life i'm now in and we work as a team. We often talk about we wish that we had had people like us to have helped us in our journey to have just guided us a bit, not to have made many of the mistakes that we made. So we do help the companies figure out the go-to-market strategy, to figure out how to get the culture right, to make the right decisions about fundraising and operations and governance. And who do you think about the order of recruiting your sales organizations? And I love the podcast I listened to, your go-to-market podcast the other day, of talking about customer success before bringing in salespeople. And funnily enough, I had a conversation the following day with one of the portfolio companies and said, actually, you're great at the sales but maybe this will free you up more if we bring in customer success, first of all. So I hope that we bring experience from our journey and work with the other companies to help these guys. But you know, we are very hands-on. And I think it probably makes a difference because it's, it's our own money. We can't not be. You know, We, we want to make sure that all of our favorite children are successful. Absolutely. Hey, well, I loved every minute of that. I love it when people tell about how they built their business. And thank you for sharing the transition into your new world and I love that you're giving back. It's fascinating to listen to that and continue success with the investing and continue success to your new children that we have just been talking about. Thanks for coming on the show, Chris. <laughs> Andy, thank you very much for having me. 